Packers. Anyway, no, not freaking Packers. Freaking Aaron Charles Rogers. That's who I'm upset. Oh, you used his middle name. Well, you're upset been, with him. No, that's he's fine. Been kind of a dummy. He needs to get his middle name thrown in there because he's being selfish, little brat. And I'm tired of it. All right, let me get back. Let me get back to baseline before we get started. <laughs> No, that's in it. I'm no, I'm hot. I'm hot now. All right. Welcome to Dad Bod History, where the drinks are cold and the takes are old. In honor of Veterans Day on November 11th, we are going to give you a brief history of Veterans Day in America and around the world. Afterwards, I'm going to ask the guys some historical hypotheticals about the people, places, and events that surround the origins of this martial holiday. So wave your flags and hold on to your butts because it's going to be a banger. But before we get started on the topic in hand, what stories from the dad front do we had? Eric, how was your weekend, man? Should I have scripted this? I Well, I scripted the intro. That you was have great. To script how your weekend was. Well, hold on. Let me type it all out. You want to no, write it out? So it, it was a fascinating weekend because I knew it was going to be busy. And right now I'm I'm like, I'm excited to be here with you fine folks. Mm-hmm. but it's near the end of uh, that time and I'm ready to like go to sleep and wake up and get the week started. But sure. on Friday, um, I ordered some pieces of furniture from Ikea and everyone's opinions about Ikea aside, <clears throat> that's what I did. But the nearest one is like an hour and a half away. So my wife being somewhat you know, anxious about my well-being, asked me to take someone with me, even though I'm just driving. So uh, I took my buddy from from school, mm-hmm. and we we drove down. I said, "Hey, can you go tonight or Sunday?" He's like, "Tonight would be great." So we drove down to Burbank Friday night um, to pick up these these three dressers, which came in nine boxes. We get there, we park. I said, "You know, we'll have dinner somewhere along the way." Mm-hmm. And we're there in the parking garage of Ikea. They bring this stuff out. We load it in the car. And he's like, well, I'm like, have you ever been in an Ikea? He's like, no. I said, we, we can go if you want. We can eat there too. He says, really? He said, well, I have to go to the bathroom. So we go in. You could do that too. Two and a half hours later, <laughs> we walk back out to the car and he's got a bath mat and I have a few other items. <laughs> but we walked around. We had a plate of Swedish meatballs. Um, each of us had our own plate. Ikea and, uh, is the it's the furniture equivalent of Disney World. There's no oh clocks. Gosh. And it's this big maze that they don't let you like there's no visible exits. And oh yeah. It's it's captivating. But he had never been to an IKEA. So yeah, he the was first like, time I went, it was pretty big deal. So, anyways, we we get back a couple hours later than I expected to unload everything and, and it was great. Saturday I wake up, I've got to take my car across town to get something fixed. The dealer said, you've got this going on. It's going to be 2,200. A buddy, a guy I work with is like, uh, we'll take him to my mechanic and see how it goes. He took it on Thursday and the guy's like, no, no, it's, it's your power steering pump. So I took it there on Saturday. Again, across the other side of town, 
Um, and he's like, he doesn't speak much English. He's like, uh, three hours will be good. And I said, yeah, do you take card for deposit? No cash only he said, okay. Um, but it's going to be three hours. So uh, I'm going to Uber back mm-hmm. my first Uber ride ever. You'd never done Uber before. No, it was a weekend of firsts. It was amazing. Guy was talkative. We had a lot of great conversation. He pulled up in a nice clean Lexus, explained he bought the car two months ago and then realized he needed to pay for it. So he started driving (laughs) Uber and um, it was great. Got me back home. I left a nice tip, gave him five stars. Yeah, your question. Oh, it's not a question. I was just gonna say, so you know that I drove Uber, yeah, for a yeah, couple of years. Me too. Now, Kyle, got me? I got Kyle into yeah, you got Uber, me to drive actually. Uber. It was and great for it's, great for Christmas cash and stuff. Yeah, it was a great way to make some extra money as a part time job. But it's just funny because as a driver, when somebody gets in your car, within about thirty seconds, you have to suss out if these people are going to be ones that want to talk to you or that just want to ride in silence. Be like, hey. How's it going? I'm Jake. How you doing? Like, hi, I'm good. You know, and, and they're like, based on their reaction, like, like, oh, hi, I'm I'm Eric. And yeah, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm like, oh, great. And then we just start chatting the yeah. whole drive. And then there's other people. I'll be like, hey, I'm Jake. How's it going? Where are we headed? And they'll be like, fine. We're going to the airport. So, so that's okay, what was cool. That's that awesome. was very yeah. interesting. Because this guy, still- we went back and forth, he told me he'll drive Uber on Friday night, Saturdays, Sundays. And then he works the rest of the day as a what rest of the week as a mechanic, yep. as like a diesel mechanic. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he does carpentry. He does all this other stuff. But he uh, he's like, I, I try not to drive too much after 9 p.m. Because that's when you get the crazies, a little bit of crazy and a little bit of, you know, more than he wants to deal with. So I get home. I'm at Those home. Those are my favorite rides, by the way. I know. As I know. We've got the stories. Talking. As long as you have a bucket of shame in the car, it's okay. <laughs> a bucket of shame? The bucket of shame. I don't know what that is. It's, it's a, a bucket. bucket. It's oh, a bucket. bucket. No, no, no. Oh, no, I was well equipped. Don't don't get me wrong, but. <laughs> I had this vase thing that like, it had like a big, like it was hard to miss. Yeah. And use, using the bucket of shame cost $50. Hey, that's, that's fair. That's more <laughs> than it out. Well, it's just if if you call if if you're an Uber driver and you call Uber and say they puked in my car, they get charged like two fifty. It depends, but yeah, it's at least two hundred. It's yep. it's what it would cost to get the car detailed, basically. Yep. So wow, it's I anyway. So so I get home. Didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> and I and I start to build one of the dressers. Sure. And then it's about time to go, and I'm like, you know, he said to be done about now. So I get the Uber driver like set up. Guy picks me up, I get in the car. He says, hello, how are you? I said, good, how are you? Good. About three minutes later, I said, been a busy day? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So it was a completely different ride back to the mechanic. Uh, and then I get to the mechanic, he pulls up. And so my car was really pulling, like I could feel it in the steering wheel when we were turning one way or the other. Uh, dealership said $2,200 for a whole rack and pinion, all this stuff. This guy's like no power steering pump. He turned that wheel, didn't hear a sound. I started driving in that thing. And I'm like, when, a, when something in your car gets fixed. Oh man. And you can feel the difference. It's yeah. like, you feel like a formula one driver. Oh my gosh. Like I, I did a U-turn. I'm like, I feel nothing mm-hmm. except joy. And yeah. 
it was were you getting were you getting that side jerk back well no it, it was just it was hard it was i was oh. feeling it okay um okay i had a I car have, that the power steering went out yeah. Oh. And I was like, well, I can just deal with this. And I did for like six months. And then finally I had, this was a long time ago. And I finally had the money to get it fixed. And I did. And I'm like, you don't realize how bad it is until you get it fixed. Cause right. Yeah. Eventually you'll just start, you'll get used to the idiosyncrasy. Yeah. The I, I was just like, and oh then you yeah. get it fixed. You're like, oh man, it's just a sound and it kind of pulls hard. It's not a big deal. Yeah. It still works. And now mm. no sound and it doesn't pull hard. So, right. so then I got back and uh car drove great i was happy the whole way home uh came home finished the dresser we had a an auction dinner last night had a blast there you looked daylight very dapper. savings time oh thank you very dapper. i felt very dapper everyone asked me if i hand tied that bow tie and i said i did but it was kind of loose and uh i did it without youtube last night so but then this morning I woke up really early because of daylight savings change, whether we were in it or not. I don't know. It does. We need to get rid of this and I'm not going to go into why we, we've it's already discussed dumb. that. I know. On our I know. Trip. Yeah. And I think we should do sundials apparently, <laughs> you know, but, just set it to the sun. <laughs> so I woke up at what felt like six, but was actually five and just started building the other two dressers. Nice. So between running errands, and building dressers and watching football and running more errands. I've just been at it all day, moving things around, taking closet doors off. It's a good weekend, a good, but tiring. It feels like weekend. a long weekend. Cause it's just been so busy yeah. and I kind of like that. So. Cool. All right, Kyle, you got anything? Um, honestly, uh, a lot of the same stuff. Uh, uh, I would say, I'm in between busy weekends. I, I did a lot of planning for next weekend being busy and the weekend before with Halloween. Because you're coming to visit next week. Yeah, we're coming to visit. That's why. Yep. So, me? Yep. You're coming to visit me? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Bring in, bring in uh, smuggling, smuggling turkeys across the border. You know, mm -hmm. we got to prepare. <laughs> is it something that's going to be a problem in one of these states? Oh, the turkey shortage of 2021. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Like uh uh our Costco already has signs about only one turkey. Don't bother coming in early. We're just gonna, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh for me, my weekend was pretty unproductive because uh I hurt my back last oh. Sunday you know, it's funny. I turned 40 and all of a sudden I keep throwing my back Seriously. out. And so wow. I've been resting my back pretty much all week and rested it all week. It's feeling a lot better. It's not a hundred percent yet, but it's for a while I was walking around like Eagle. Uh, was it Igor from mm -hmm. my name's Eric. My name is Eric. And you can just say you're walking around like That's, Eric. I didn't want to <laughs> say it, but yeah. Um, there was some icy hot on there and freaking, Oh, my whole back, muscle one point, my whole back was on icy hot and wraps and muscle relaxants. I was, it was basically no bones day for me. It was, it's just, I just laid in the recliner. I'm like, I'm not moving for four hours. Like that was the end of it. But, uh, I, it was a good weekend. You know, it's funny. Um, for my birthday, we got a Nintendo 64. 
for my wife. That's what she bought me for my birthday. And so we had, um, she bought two games initially, Mario Kart and Mario Smash Brothers. Yeah. Awesome. And then this past week, she bought two more games, Rampage, which I don't know oh, if you guys wow. remember that one, where you're either a gorilla or a lizard. Oh, yeah. Yes. And you just smash oh, buildings. So and, good. And I, I didn't know that was N64, but I know that like I used to play that in the arcade. I think there was an arcade version before yeah. that. And this is Rampage World Tour. Anyway, my kids absolutely love it. Like they're like, who do we save? And my wife is like, you don't save anyone. You kill everything. And my son's eyes light up. And he's like, just smashing everything, picking people up. It was awesome. And, you know, it's not teaching you to, you know, be a nice person. But, man, is it fun. And then uh, she put the other game she bought this past week was Mario Party, which my kids also Oh, that's a great one. Love. Yeah, they're like, they they're having a blast playing and it's fun for me like hearing them like mash the buttons like the sound of them mashing the buttons on the controllers like takes me back to when i was you know a child or a teenager and it's very it's just a very nice moment for me to like i don't even want to play i just want to watch and listen to them play and uh so it's really cool although i i do play a few of the games but um it's just kind of fun to see them you know, in a day where we have all these high-tech computer games and PlayStation and Xbox and 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 you can play pretty much any game in the world through Steam and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of nice to have them play a console game from my childhood and have so much fun doing it. So anyway, that, that's my, yeah. I guess, my story of the week. Um, all right, well, let's uh, let's get into this. So I'll I'll lead us in. We're talking about Veterans Day. It's coming up this November. It's actually coming up November 11th. And as we all know, in America, we celebrate this day by honoring and thanking our veterans for their service. Often these celebrations are parades, memorials, moments of silence. But the question I have is where did Veterans Day originate and why is it celebrated on November 11th? Because I think a lot about it, we we talk about Veterans Day and how we should honor the veterans, but I think a lot of people in America don't know much about where it came from. And so I want to spend some time talking about that. First off saying is America's Veteran Day actually traces its origins to a train car in Compagnie, France on November 11th, 1918 at 5 a.m. It is there that the Germans under Matthias Erzberger signed the demands from the delegation of the Supreme Allied Commander Ferdinand Folk from France in his private train car to begin a ceasefire of hostilities for World War I, an armistice, if you will, and begin the negotiations of peace between the belligerent nations. The armistice went into effect six hours later at 11 a.m. in Paris, when across the front, the guns that had boomed for 41 months finally fell silent. And with that, the Great War, the war to end all wars, ended on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918. So that's that's where the date of Veterans Day comes from. And I wanna explore some time talking about World War I and why it led to this annual celebration that we have now. Uh, Eric, can you kind of go over the terms of surrender? Yeah, I can. So I love World War I. 
like I love studying it and I love teaching it because we're we're doing that right now. Um, and there's a book that I use to teach it. It's called Treaties, Trenches, Mud and Blood. And mm-hmm. it's a it's a graphic novel by uh, the author Nathan Hale, whose other graphic one of his other ones is One Dead Spy, which is about Nathan Hale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love using that book to teach it because it gets into detail and gets into all these personalities and it treats all the nations as different animals. So you can keep them, uh, you know, apart. So the French are the Gallic rooster. The Germans are an Eagle. The Austrians are a Griffin. Serbians are a wolf. Russians are a bear. Um, the Belgians are a lion and the British are a bulldog. The Americans are bunnies that's because the well, the Germans are an eagle already. So that was his his so reason. We got we got stuck with bunny. Yeah, and uh, the Turks are otters. Ottoman. Otterman. That makes sense. <laughs> okay, I like it. And, and it, it it's really the I so the kids all just take on parts and read it as we read through. It's it's really fun, um, and yeah. So I just this is this is a fun topic. Um, yeah, so these these terms of surrender, you know, Germans had to leave um, Belgium, France, Luxembourg within 15 days. They had been there for four years. They had been entrenched. They had these base camps. They had all this infrastructure and logistics throughout this area, and they had to pull back within 15 days. They're going to give up Alsace-Lorraine, which had been captured uh, in... 1871 in the Franco-Prussian War, Mm -hmm. um, it was going to be one of the things that they were going to lose at the end of this war, the peace treaty. They were going to take it back in World War II. And, you know, one of the characteristics of Alsace-Lorraine is it's heavy in coal and iron. So if you control Alsace-Lorraine, you control a major portion of the ability to make steel. Um, So it's heavy and it's rich in those things. And again, they're going to have to disarm 5,000 artillery pieces, 25,000 machine guns, 1,700 airplanes, 5,000 railroad locomotives, 5,000 trucks, 150,000 wagons. Uh, Keeping in mind that even into World War II, every army in the world except one were still effectively horse driven mm-hmm. so wagons are what you transport with even during world war ii most equipment is moved around using horses as a primary mode of transportation except for the united states we are fully mechanized during world war ii um you know the allied forces are going to be in german territory in the rhine until 1930 <laughs> Uh, German troops are going to have to get out of Romania and the Ottoman Empire. Um, Austro- all Austro-Hungarian Empire, they're going to have to go back to their original borders, including what Germany had gained from the Russians in the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in 1917, in which the Russians, in the middle of their own civil war between the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks, and and uh, you know, are the White Russians and Red Russians, right? You have this communist revolution starting against the Romanovs. And those who are loyal to, or the monarchists, I suppose, um, they just said, we're going to sue for, for peace and basically double German territory. Just give you this chunk of Russia that doubles German territory just to end the war. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to give all that back. And keeping in mind that 
Russia is not going to be part of this particular peace treaty because they had set their own peace treaty, which was going to be negated by the terms of this agreement. Which is so fascinating. I think that's what gives you a, a sense of how one-sided this ceasefire and then eventual peace treaty is, is, is right. The borders have to go back to what they were in August 1st, 1914. So before the war had started, mm -hmm. Germany never, and this is one of the things that they, a lot of veterans of World War I that are on Germany's side or their descendants will say is we never were invaded during that war. We, Germany, never lost any territory during the war. And yet they had to give back all the territory that they had gained. And it's a very punitive measure. Oh, it's very punitive. When my students asked this week, they said, well, who won World War I? And I said, well, we'll get to that. And, but they kind of knew, they're like, well, Germany lost. And I said, yeah, everyone lost. I'm like, the war, it wasn't like somebody was defeated. It just ended. And yeah, it ended with the Germans kind of saying, we're ready to give up. Can we just stop? And so that's the impetus for saying they're the ones who quit first. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's, it just stopped literally on November 11th. It just, they're like, yeah, we're done. And I'm, this is stupid. Well, and something about that is, and I think we get into this later, but like those guns are firing right up until 11 a.m. Like, yeah. Like the allies are not going to lay off in case the Germans decide to go backsies on the, on the deal. Yeah. yeah. And so they're just bombarding Germany until the very moment that it hits 11 o'clock and then they stop and everybody just stops. And then the peace deal, which I'll, I'll get into real quick here, doesn't happen until June 28th, 1919. So it's another six, seven months after the armistice. Right. Cause this is just a ceasefire. Let's stop mm -hmm. and start negotiating yeah. to actually have terms. And so then these terms are Germany has to pay back $37 billion in reparations to the allied nations. Uh, that would be about 40, $492 billion today. So massive amount of money um, that they have to pay back and they have no economy. Their economy is destroyed mm -hmm. because of the, this war. Um, and so that leads to massive unemployment in Germany, hyperinflation, a whole bunch of other economic issues that they have to deal with. Uh, they lost 25,000 square miles of territory. They had to cede all territory gained during the war and recognize those nations' independence, like such as Belgium. Um, they had to Germany lost Alsace-Lorraine, even though they held it since 1871. So this is this is where yeah, France France never captured it. France has this leverage though, because Germany came to them asking for the armistice. And and so they say, well, yeah, not only do you have to give up everything you lost in this war, but you have to give us this thing that you had since the 1870s, 50 years ago. Um, uh, Germany forfeited all their colonies. And so they, I think Cameroon, um, they had some colonies in Southeast Asia that they had to give up as well. So they had to give up their empire and then they had to undergo full demilitarization, although they had some workarounds with that as they explored in the 20s and 30s. But it was a very punitive peace treaty between Germany and the allies, but mainly France, England, uh, and America. And actually, Will, Woodrow Wilson, although he's not my biggest, I'm not a big fan of his, 
he tried to be a little more magnanimous during the peace talks. And I'm not going to say he was like some prophet on how this would be a, a bad thing if we punish Germany this much, but um, France was really like, nope, we're not what they did well, to our country. Like we're he's not, not taking- so much a prophet as he, he could see what was the writing on the wall. The French yeah. just didn't care. I mean, they're just like, we're going to punish Germany. And at this point, you know, well, in France, at, at what I mean, point France in history, suffered, how many hadn't liked each other for several Yeah, but at centuries. what point in history had economies in Europe been so closely tied together as they would be in the 1920s? Mm-hmm. So how could they have assumed that it was going to be detrimental to everyone, just on an economic standpoint? Not even, you know, it's yeah. going to foster more nationalism and national socialism and all these other uprisings. Um, but, you know, Germany gets the blame for this. and. And I always struggled with this because the way the war opens up is we have Franz Ferdinand and his wife are assassinated on June 28th in Sarajevo. And Austria issues them these ultimatums. I think it's like 10 or 12 points. They say, here are the things you need to do. And Serbia's like, we're not going to do it. And Austria's like, you got 48 hours. And then Russia's telling Serbia, no, you got to agree to it. They say, fine, we'll agree to all of them except... Um, we're not going to let Austrian police operate in Serbia. That's just ridiculous. There's no way that's happening. And Austria's like, well, that's it. And Germany's like, dude, can you just cool it? And Austria's like, they killed our air. Germany's trying to get Russia to calm down. Um, And one of the things that happens is Germany is, they're kind of mobilizing. Austria has been mobilizing. Serbia's mobilizing. And then Russia mobilizes. And Germany turns to Russia, and we're talking about Tsar Nicholas and Kaiser Wilhelm, Russia mobilizes and Germany says to Russia, please stop mobilizing. If you stop mobilizing, we can avoid this. And Russia says, no, we're not going to stop. And that was kind of the point at which things could have turned away from war. If Russia maybe had pulled it back. But Germany, of course, is the, is the heavy hitter here. Um, among the central powers. And so even though Austria is the one that pushed for war, even though Serbia was involved in this assassination, those two countries receive no massive punitive measures. I mean, Austria-Hungary is broken up, but nothing like what Germany faces. Yeah, there's a lot of enmity between Germany and France and England, but also because Germany invaded France. Yeah. Germany and well, and not just Germany, I mean, it takes two to tango, but the war in France devastated the countryside. Like it, I mean, it obliterated hills and mountains. Like, yeah. I mean, the whole landscape was forever changed because of that. And so France in that sense is rightfully upset. And I, the, the, the retribution or the vengeance that they want, you can see why they wanted to punish Germany because Austria, Hungary, didn't do that to France. The Ottoman Empire didn't do that to France. It was Germany that did that to them. And so I, I think that's where they get this, this, we're going to make you pay back for everything you did to us tenfold. But um, but that's, I mean, that's how the war ended. You know, the armistice was on November 11th, 1918. The peace wasn't until June 28th, 1919. Um, and then November 11th, 
1919, so one year after the armistice, uh, Woodrow Wilson issued this proclamation. He goes, out of this victory, there, there arose new possibilities of political freedom and economic concert. The war showed us the strength of great nations acting together for high purpose, and the victory of arms foretells the enduring conquest which can be made in peace when nations act justly and in furtherance of the common interests of man. To us in America, the reflections of Armistice Day will be filled with solemn pride in the heroism of those who died in the country's service, and with gratitude for victory, for the victory, both because of the thing from which it had freed us and because of the opportunity it has given America to show her sympathy with peace and justice in the Council of Nations. Uh, I, I don't think it would be too much to say that World War I was America's coming out party as far as a, a leader of nations. I, I know before then there was the Spanish-American War, but I think World War I gave us a chance to show who we were. Well, I think it's the um, first time the internationally the where we were listened to. Well, to an extent. I mean, Woodrow Wilson provides his 14 points, mm -hmm. uh, some of which include, you know, self-determination of nations, which is you know, something that is is kind of promoted, right? You have all of the diff different ethnic groups in Austria-Hungary break up and have get to have their own pieces. Um, to some extent, Yugoslavia is made up of like seven different major mm -hmm. ethnic groups. Um, Czechoslovakia. But, yeah, I mean, it's still several different groups, but the Austrians, the Hungarians... Um, you know, it gets broken up, right? So there's some self-determination. But outside of some of his points, he's basically ignored, right? He says, if we're going to be punitive, this is going to lead to bigger problems. And, and nobody wants to listen to that. And sure. when he returns with the Treaty of Versailles in hand uh, and, the, and the plan for the League of Nations, Congress doesn't allow us to join the League of Nations, and they don't sign the Treaty of Versailles. We had to we signed our own separate treaty with Germany. Yeah. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying is more of a coming out party in, in terms of right. We're, we're on here the international to fight. stage. We are, and I'm not going to say we were the turning point in the war. I think by the time we entered the war, Germany was struggling as it was, but. The fact that America was able to send essentially unlimited troops was, and supplies. It was our munitions. manufacturing that was the most yeah, helpful. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Germany just at this point could not keep up with, yeah. with the allies um, industrially. And, and so in that sense, America kind of stepped forward, right? America was always viewed as like this backwater country and um, Isolationist. Know, they, weren't really a, they weren't a first, you know, they weren't a first world power like england france and germany were and, and so this was them stepping up and saying yeah we, we belong um so it's just kind of an interesting moment there for america and they were very fortunate america didn't have to enter the war until 1917 so they missed most of the heavy fighting that france and england and germany suffered and obviously russia and, and the others uh the other powers on the eastern front but it was a uh, it was a big moment for the United States. It, it kind of changed geopolitics for us. Ooh, I like that. I know. See where I'm coming with that. Oh and uh, so anyway, that, that was the first Armistice Day. 
November 11th, 1919. Congress then requested Eric's favorite president, Calvin Coolidge, yeah. to issue an annual pro proclamation calling for the observance of November 11th in 1926. Congress passed an act on May 13, 1938, declaring November 11th each year a legal holiday, a day to be dedicated to the cause of world peace and to be thereafter celebrated and known as Armistice Day. And in 1945, World War II veteran Raymond Weeks petitioned General Eisenhower to honor all veterans, not just those of World War I. Weeks held the first Veterans Day in celebration in 1947 in his home state of Alabama. And then Congress amended their previous bill on June 1st, 1954, changing the day from armistice to veterans. And so that's that's the, the brief history of, of where we get Veterans Day. But it all started in World War One. It was all birthed out of that um, that desire to honor the men that served during World War One, and and it kind of makes sense because it was a war unlike any other war that the United States had ever experienced. And although our participation was limited compared to the other powers, um, I mean, it was devastating as far as the casualties we suffered. I, I think it quickly eclipsed this, not the Civil War, but the Revolutionary War. Oh yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, and, and while. For for the United States, the Civil War is the single most uh, deadly war. But, but I mean, but that was a that, war that took four years between yeah. two halves of the United States, whereas this was a year and a half for us. Yeah, we were losing. You're right, Kyle. Go back to that. What was it? We lost more men. I'm trying to. I'm in trying one day to, of battle in the, World War One than we did in the entire Revolutionary War. Yes, like, um, that's that was actually one of my when I was doing my. I had to do military history last year. And that was one of the questions is there was a specific day where I have to, I'm trying to Google the battle. But that just gives you an idea of the scope of this war and France and Germany and England. I mean, they lost millions. The of French men. lost 200,000 in the first month of the war. And, and these numbers are, you know, as far as Amer Americans are concerned, when we, you know, look back in our history of warfare, the Civil War, 600,000, that is a huge number. But the Battle of Verdun cost 600,000 lives, a single battle. And that lasted, you know, months. But still, the, the numbers in this war are just staggering. And it's not like there's these major battles where there are these big turning points. They're just major battles and nothing changes. It's not like the Battle of Stalingrad where the Russians, like, captured or killed 2 million Germans, um, which is still, that that's, that's an unfathomable number in a battle, but it's just this meat grinder of a war. And these yeah. numbers just stack up. And, and these young American boys and men rushing off into battle, you know, to serve their country and for glory and adventure. And they just get chewed up just like the French had been getting chewed up for three years. Yeah. And like it's, and I think that's where, you know, it, it, it was a reality check for the world, for Europe, well, especially, but. We've discussed this though, right? Like four years of, of old tactics and, and new weapons and new technology. 
And so very quickly, the war devolves into this trench warfare. But we saw this in 1904 and 1905 During between Russia Jap- and Japan. Yep. Exactly. It, it played itself out. And those that to that point was the deadliest war in history. And it gets so overlooked because it was the All, Russo-Japanese everything was war. Yeah. And it's so funny is because when we did that series on the Russo-Japanese war, we said there's these observers from Germany yeah. and France and England watching and taking down notes from watching the Russians fail miserably and watching the Japanese succeed. And 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 the, the lessons that they took from the Russo-Japanese war, essentially the first modern war. And they said they learned all the wrong lessons. Like. Yeah. <laughs> that was I, the, I don't I don't I don't want any of those observers to be able to make a TikTok with I understood the assignment because they absolutely did not. <laughs> no, they didn't, because they looked in like, well, Japan is is attacking, attacking, attacking. And that's the way you win this war. And so when Germany and France line up across from each other, like, I guess we just attack. And all that did was resulted in, like you said, hundreds of thousands of people dead in a month and nothing accomplished because of it. And what the lesson that they should have learned was that strong, fortified defenses are really, really useful in this new modern war. And that's what they didn't learn from the Russo-Japanese War. They learned the wrong lessons and didn't apply that to 1914. Um, and I don't Kyle, if you found that battle yet, but oh, it's just... Um, uh, I, it was the Battle of St... Uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, Mihail. Uh, like St. Michael, almost. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it, I'm sorry, it was three days. Uh, it was three days long and it was 4,500 Americans killed. Uh, straight up killed. Uh, but when you add in killed, captured, and wounded, the because 6,800 Americans were killed in Revolutionary War, in the whole mm-hmm. war. Is that so, it? Yep. Isn't that wild? That's, well, it is, but it isn't. I mean, you look at loaders. warfare I mean, <laughs> prior to the Russo-Japanese War. I mean, the Civil War was immense, but single battles. You know, if you talk about Gettysburg and Vicksburg and yeah. Antietam, yeah. and and those were mass concentrations of troops, but uh, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg had only. Uh, I mean, this is Wikipedia, so. Oop. You guys still, yeah, but so, but uh, that that battle actually had uh, 1500 more than 1400 more than the Battle of Gettysburg, isn't that wild? But Hmm. it it just gives you an idea of the scale, and so you can see how Woodrow Wilson and and the Congress and, and just the people of America wanted to honor those veterans because of this grand conflict that they were involved in. And the cost, I mean, it was a massive cost. I mean, although the United States comparatively had a low cost, like still tens of thousands of young men never came home from this war across the ocean. And and so you can see why they wanted to honor the the servicemen of that. And then after World War II, they didn't want to just honor the servicemen of World War I, but all servicemen. And then eventually all servicemen and women um, through Veterans Day. But the day itself is fixed on November 11th, which is which is coming up. Is it this Friday or Thursday? Thursday. Yeah. And and so... Which is why it's not celebrated on a Monday, because it has to be on the 11th. So we have school Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, mm-hmm. no school Thursday, school again on Friday. 
Really? You don't get the extra day there. They don't, they don't no. just round up. No, um, no it's gotta be on the, well, yeah. Well, I'm saying Thursday, uh, Friday. Plenty of people are taking the day off. Let me tell you, there's plenty <laughs> of students that won't be there. Yeah. But I, here's another point I bring up is the day that we're remembering, we're calling it Armistice Day. I'm sorry, and I keep saying it wrong. What'd you say? Armistice. I'm Armistice. Oh, it's yeah. fine. It's okay. all the same. It's English. Um, is it? I, I look back at history and we remember certain moments. We commemorate certain days, especially victories, right? We celebrate Independence Day or we celebrate, you know, uh, I guess well, Gettysburg happened July 1st, 2nd and 3rd. Um, you know, these grand victories, these great moments, uh, that we kind of hold up armistice day is like, thank God it's over this horrific event. We have to remember it because I, up until this point, they always honored soldiers who came home in victory and they marched and had their flags and they celebrated them. But this was different because it was like, yeah, this was a real crappy situation. And those of you who experienced it on our behalf, um, we're going to make sure every year we remember that we ended this war. And and then later on, it, remember yeah. you for participating in this thing that was horrific. Yeah, and it's funny because the way I think of it, and it's still observed in all these other European countries, I think it still has Armistice Day. But it, the way I think of it is two prize fighters. Mm-hmm. One is France, one is Germany. And they're just barely standing like, like they're just barely hanging on and Germany throws in the towel and France can sigh an exhaustion of relief. Like it's finally over. Like it's not this triumphal return or, you know, Caesar marching to Rome. It's, you know, we went 15 rounds and took the best shots that anyone had. And finally one of them just gave up. Um, but like you said, yeah, it's not a it's not a victory like we would normally think of it. Um, all right, so I want I want to do some facts before we get into the questions I have. Uh, I, 20... I have one more thing. Oh, go ahead. A fact. Go. Cool. Uh, you know, in the Commonwealth nations, it's known as Remembrance Day, and you know, Armistice Day became in uh, became Remembrance Day. So, United Kingdom and the Commonwealth nations, and it's commemorated by the wearing of a poppy. Right. So Hoppy comes from the poem In Flanders Field, and it was memorialized and promoted by Moina Michael. Um, and she sewed these little red poppy flowers, right, that you would wear for Remembrance Day. If you happen to watch uh, English Premier League soccer this weekend, all of the jerseys had a red poppy in the center. Oh, very cool. Because that's what they do. Another big day that's celebrated in sports and they use the poppies as well is on Anzac Day, which is Australia, New Zealand commemorates specifically their um, participation. And they're Mm -hmm. most famously known for their participation at Gallipoli, which is where they (laughs) suffered massive casualties as that expeditionary force brought from Australia and New Zealand. Well, and that's the thing is because, well, and we can keep going on. These empires brought, I'm not going to call them conscripts, but they brought 
forces from all their colonies. So there was England, you know, England brought obviously Australia and New Zealand, but then they brought uh, uh, regulars from India, from North Africa, France brought people from there. So like from Algeria, it was was this massive worldwide conflict, all centered. Even the Japanese are involved. And I don't know enough about their involvement. I I think they entered pretty late and they used it so they could, they could, uh, gobble up the German colonies, I think is basically what happened is they took Germany's colonies and they entered very late though, and kind of got to, yeah, I don't know, take those. They, they took Germany's colonies with a wink. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, they, they jumped in, like they were that that guy on the group project that signed his name and somehow got credit for the A. No, no, no. Uh, They, they came in and were like, Oh, we'll take the colonies, but just come. That was actually one of the, places where they started becoming friends more oh them in germany yeah because oh they and took that's some how they... of their stuff and went, we'll take it don't worry but we're going to give you uh we'll let they you keep of... your stuff and keep they almost became the... stewards of it yep very interesting i didn't know that when, um, what one other nerd fact that i like to bring up is this <laughs> uh uh it just uh at the treaty of versailles a, a different ghost uh came later to haunt us because Actually, Ho Chi Minh came to talk to President Wilson, and the French said, "If you talk to Indochina, we're going to make it worse for you." And so, yeah, I know he, Ho Chi Minh wanted to. Yep, he loved America. He loved American yep. democracy, and he yep. was a big. He's, and then, but yep. the U.S. didn't support they, him, and so then he's like, "Well, yeah, the Soviets will." So yep. the the how. French. There's actually a. I'll I'll uh, my my advisor is really big into uh, uh, the precursor to the Vietnam War. And there's actually a letter where the, I think it's basically France is threatening Wilson saying, you know, we're going to basically, you know, don't bring up Indochina. That's ours. Leave it alone. Or we're going to make things even worse for you here than it already is. And so Wilson had to ignore Ho Chi Minh. Uh, Oh, that's uh, a whole other yeah, sorry. So uh, Vietnam good... is his fault. It is. One more thing we can blame yeah, with, on Woodrow Wilson. Wilson. Well, you might be able to blame France too. I mean, that's, no, no, it's, it's Woodrow okay. Wilson's fault. All right, no, that's fine. All right, some other right. Uh, interesting facts that I found in in the research for this. Um, so the war officially ended with the Treaty of Versailles on June 28, nineteen nineteen. This was the fifth anniversary of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. So, in a sense, the war started and ended on the same date, June 28th. Uh, the prelude to the war was a Duke named Franz Ferdinand being killed. And the end of the war came with the demands of a general named Ferdinand. So again, the war Sounds started and ended with the same. Like a conspiracy. Person. I know I'm, that's, it's like a Lincoln Kennedy thing. See all those facts where oh, people should compare. Well, they got the same yeah. number of letters in their name. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. All right. Um, Kaiser Wilhelm, he was in Belgium at the time of the war ending, and he fled to the Netherlands uh, while Matthew Erzberger was trying to negotiate with France. And then the, and then the French basically sit, handed Erzberger a paper saying, your Kaiser ran away. You might want to sign the papers. Like, <laughs> like you couldn't wait one more day, Wilhelm? Like, and, uh, and that was one of the final things that pushed Germany to sign this very uh, unfavorable peace treaty or armistice um four empires fell as a result of world war one the german empire austro-hungarian russian and ottoman 
Uh, German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck foretold World War I. One day, the Great European War will come out of some damned foolish thing in the Balkans. Uh, Otto von Bismarck was famously the one that made the German Empire what it was with him and Kaiser Wilhelm I. Uh, and this was in 1888 when he said this quote, so it was very accurate. Uh, Matthias Erzberger, the guy that signed the armistice, was killed by German nationalists in 1923 um, as retribution for their capitulation to the French. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, Eric, and I know you want to talk about this one. Kaiser Wilhelm yeah. II, King George V of England, and Tsar Nicholas II were all cousins. Yeah, this is, I know you, you, you say that and you're like, okay, yeah. So, but this is wild how that they are all cousins. So in Europe in the 1800s, Christian IX of Denmark and Queen Victoria are considered like the grandparents of European royalty, right? So Christian IX has four children, Dagmar, George, Frederick, and Alexandra. Well, Alexandra marries Edward VII, who's Queen Victoria's son, and their son is George V, right? So George V is grandson to both Christian IX and Queen Victoria. All right. Christian IX also has um, a daughter, Dagmar, who marries, I uh, think it's Alexander III. And their son is Nicholas II. So Nicholas II is a grandson of Christian IX. On the other side, Queen Victoria, her daughter Victoria, marries into the German royal family. Her son is Wilhelm II. So Queen Victoria's other grandson is Kaiser Wilhelm. So George V and Kaiser Wilhelm are first cousins. Uh, George V and Nicholas II are also first cousins. And they look identical, if you've seen the two pictures of them. Yeah. Um, but then if you go back, didn't you say that they used to like wear each other's like outfits yeah, there's a at picture like of them parties or something where, well, they wore each other's uniforms because they went out on maneuvers together and they're like, yeah, you, you be, you be the English guy and I'll be the Russian guy today. It sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. And Wilhelm II looked somewhat different. He had a better mustache than those two, but Which um, then like, well, and so, and so Charles- Wilhelm's, uh cousin alex alex a-l-i-x married nicholas ii and so william ii and nicholas ii they aren't first cousins they're third cousins and i gotta go find i have to have these diagrams so i can figure this out they go back um they share grandparents on two sides they're both uh great grandsons of I think it's greater great great grandsons of Tsar, Tsar Paul the first and King Frederick Wilhelm the third of Prussia. And Would like been, one yeah. of them is married to the other's sister. It, it's it well, is, in Charles before this war, their family name was Saxe-Coburg Gotha, Saxe-Coburg yeah. and Gotha. And then they changed it because they were getting a lot of anti-German sentiment during the war. And so then that's when they changed it from Saxe Coburg Gotha to Windsor. to Windsor. Yeah. And Kaiser Wilhelm kind of made fun of them. He says, Oh, well, I bet they're going to go watch the Merry Wives of Saxe Coburg and Gotha as opposed to the Merry Wives of Windsor. Like it was a, it was a, when the war was going well yeah. for Germany, they kind of poked fun at England because. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but George III spoke more German than he did English. 
I think so. I, I, I'm I think it was after, I think it was the glorious revolution of 1688 is when the Germans from William of Orange came yeah. over. But even for the longest time, the British royal family or the English royal family, they spoke German. German, yeah. Quite a bit. Anyway, so, but this all like really ties together in the 1800s between these families. Then, of course, at the other side, you do have other royal families in England, <clears throat> including like the Habsburgs in Austria-Hungary, you know, um, that's Franz Ferdinand and... and um, Franz Joseph. Franz Joseph. Um, and today, there's 10 hereditary thrones still in Europe. So. Yeah. You know, it's just fascinating how this war, like we look at this thing on this grand scale between all these nations. Yeah. And it's like, but in a weird sense, it was also this weird family, family rivalry. Yeah. And, so, you know, with Christian the Ninth of Denmark and Queen Victoria, that included monarchs in Russia, in Greece, in Denmark, in Norway, in England, in Germany, in Romania, and in Spain. From yeah. those two monarchs, they had royalty in what those seven or eight houses and mm -hmm. and nations. It's which is why you had all these intermingled and yeah. weird alliances, is because it's part of the reason they're all related. Yeah. 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 So and families are messed up. So why wouldn't this spill out into a worldwide massive conflagration of yeah. death and blood and mud? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, that was. And, and before we get into the questions, um, just the last casualties of the war, because I think this is important, especially since we're talking about Veterans Day. Um, so Battery 4 of the United States Navy long-range 14-inch railway guns were firing their last shot at 10.57 and 30 seconds a.m. from Verdun. They timed them to land far behind the German front line before the scheduled armistice. So they fired the guns two and a half minutes before the armistice, and they fired them to land and explode behind Germany's line just as 11 a.m. was hitting. Um, the last French uh, soldier to die was shot on his way to tell his fellow soldiers who were attempting to assault the, the Meuse River that hot soup was being served after the ceasefire. He was killed at 1045 a.m. Like, it's just, it's, I don't know, it's kind of a gallows humor, right? Like, he's so close. I, I, I guess it also just shows just how much some people just, I don't know if they didn't want the war to end or they just didn't believe the war was going to end. Sure. Type of thing. And with the mixture of the people who are like, yes, we're done with this. Let's get the hell out of here. No, no I agree. We also have people with kind of like this sunk cost theory, right? Like. We don't want to quit now. We've poured so much into it. Mm -hmm. Quitting wouldn't. We have to make won. sense to quit now. It's yeah. like quitting. Well, quitting means we would have to admit we lost. It's like, well, yeah. you lost anyway. Um, last British soldier to die was George Edwin Ellison of the Fifth Royal Lancers. He's killed around nine thirty a.m. while scouting on the outskirts of Belgium. The final Canadian and Commonwealth soldier was Private George Lawrence Price. He was shot and killed by a sniper while part of a force advancing into Belgian town of Ville-sur-Han just two minutes before the armistice uh, at 1058. And uh, the last American, who was also considered the last soldier to die, 
in action was Henry Gunther. He was killed 60 seconds before the armistice came into force while charging astonished German troops who were aware of the armistice was nearly upon them. He had been despondent over his recent reduction in rank and was trying to redeem his reputation. And so he had like this last gasp for glory sort of thing and charged these Germans and the Germans killed him. I mean, they, and it's just like, it's so sad. It's like, you're so close, like you're so close to going home, but you know, four years or even just one year of being in those trenches and it totally changes you. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe you feel like you can't live if you have to live with shame, which is probably what was going through his mind. Um, and a fictional oh, character killed right at the end of the war. Paul Baumer of All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, yeah. Spoiler alert. Don't, don't draw. <laughs> don't watch the movie that came no. out 30 years ago. Sorry, guys. No. Yeah. Don't he, get uh, drawing on the... Yep. Yeah. Yeah. On a peaceful October day when it's all quiet on the Western Front. How does anybody remember how long the uh, American tours were for World War One? I? I think they I were would, there till it was over. <laughs> I have no I, idea. <laughs> I mean, I would guess a year, but I don't. I don't know. Um, all right. So I got some questions for you guys. I know I do know that they rotated. So you did like yeah. seven or 14 days at the front. Yeah. And then you did like 14 to 21 days in reserves. Then you came back to the front for those short periods. But okay. All right. So which leader would you have dinner with? Tsar Nicholas II, Kaiser Wilhelm II, King George V, President Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Sultan Mehmed V or Emperor Franz Joseph I? Well, King George is going to have the best food because Tsar Nicholas is not going to have much food and Kaiser Wilhelm is not going to have much food. King George has all the supply lines open. President Wilson, I don't care to speak to him. Pretty sure Franz Joseph is going to be under some sort of embargoes and blockades and probably Mehmed V. So I think King George V is in the best position to provide me with a good filling meal. Okay. And have, conversation that I could understand. I have a weird secondary, but what time is this before the war, after the war or, or during the war? Sometime well, during. You're not going to have dinner with Tsar Nicholas after the war. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah don't. Fair enough. Sometime I, I, during, I mean, you can pick what time, but some sometime between 1914 and 1918. I'd, I'd actually be interested to talk to Kaiser Wilhelm, honestly. We'll say it's early in the war. Yep. Kaiser Wilhelm. Then maybe I'd go with Wilhelm. I mean, be, because, I think, because of World War II, a lot of times, especially America, tries to paint Germany as, as like pre-Nazis. These were also Nazis type of thing. I in a lot but i'd be honestly interested to just get in get into the head of a person like that and exactly just watching the devastation understanding how bad it actually and how quickly it turned into what it turned into see i would probably have dinner with Tsar nicholas ii because i think he's a very tragic figure 
and you'd um, get to meet Rasputin. Oh, and I, I would be like, you need to leave, Nick. You need to get your family out of here now because <laughs> things are not going to end well for you. I come from the future with a message and you need to leave. Like <laughs> it's, but it's sad because his, you know, I, the, Dar Nicholas's story is very tragic because what was he? His, his father was going to train him how to be an emperor on his 30th birthday, but his father died before he turned 30. And so he never learned. It was Alexander, right? His father mm-hmm. was Alexander. And so he never learned how to run this empire. And you can see that throughout his life, like in the Russo-Japanese war. And, and he just doesn't know how to deal with, with being head of state. And, uh, and the, just the tragedy that happens to his family, like it, it really upsets me. And so I would, I guess if, uh, of all these characters, I think his is the most tragic story. And so he would be the one that I'd want to meet with um and have dinner with okay um kind of following up on that which advice would you give to the following what advice would you give to archduke franz ferdinand czar nicholas the first oh you okay uh kaiser wilhelm the second or the vienna academy of fine arts uh well for Franz, I'd say put the top up on the car. See, I would tell him, don't go back to that hospital. Because that's when he dies. Well, it's on his way away from the hospital. Well, right? no, he's, well, I think they take a wrong, because he, the attack happens, they miss. So they go to the palace and then he goes, well, I want to go to the hospital. Yeah. And see the victims and they take a wrong turn. And I forget the name of the guy that's like, oh, Gavrilo and he shoots him. And his wife. He had just eaten a sandwich, a barrack, to be exact. Just like a little wrap, I guess. It's kind of a pastry. <laughs> Anyways. Um, okay. What about you, Kyle? Would you give some advice to anybody here? Beware of the little red cookbook to Tsar Nicholas. The communist Can you explain manifesto. That? Oh, okay. okay. That's like, I'm like, is that Rasputin's like special guess, recipes? Yeah, I wouldn't need anything from that cookbook. Um, <laughs> no, um, yeah, May, maybe hire a, a different advisor. Um, yeah. but no, uh, no, honestly, I, I don't have anything really. I maybe try to, uh, ignore a couple of the, uh, treaties that you guys are signing so you don't get dragged into something stupid but yeah <laughs> i think if i could get there early enough i tell czar nicholas don't get into a war with japan yeah just don't do that like That's prevent true. that war and yeah. and you'll be good to go for the next one mm-hmm. for kaiser wilhelm i mean send send better advisors who went and watched i i tell I'd kaiser say, wilhelm you shouldn't have fired bismarck <laughs> that's what I, I, i'd say uh quit austria hungary just tell them no you're not interested yeah we're out and for the vienna academy of the arts just let the kid in i know just i agree let him in <laughs> i've seen be a the great paintings artist. aren't bad that's what you're there to teach him more so take a decent painting and turn it into a better artist and save us all the grief for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, the Vienna Academy of Arts famously rejected Hitler's application to become a student for art there. And so 
theoretically, had they not done that, uh, Hitler would have been a very angry, emo little artist in Vienna and wouldn't have bothered the rest of the world with his ramblings. Somebody so. else would have. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, certainly. It's it's geopolitics. So, well, I mean, that's the thing is after Germany loses World War One, uh, that a lot of ultra nationalist groups crop up. Um, and and so if it wasn't Hitler, it almost certainly would have been someone else. Yeah, it, that was definitely a situation where the situation made a person. Yeah. Would it would it have would it have found somebody else who had the kind of charisma and ability to manipulate uh, to the extent that he did, would it have, was there somebody else that could have done that, that it would have found? That's a good question. I don't know, because you look at a lot of Hitler's right-hand men, like Himmel and, you Gimler, know, Gimler, it's, you know, they're like, who was, was it Goebbels? Who was the actual, he was a propagandist. Yeah. He, I was like, he was one of but, the biggest. But he was a propagandist, they, but did he have the ability to go into a, a building or into an arena and speak and like, get the fire out of everybody i don't think so but he had the ability to manipulate information and film and he was brilliant yeah. with with using those tools yeah. but he needed but i don't his... think he could have spoken to people in a way that would have gotten them to to move yeah. on his behalf uh who are the other one himmler uh yeah. that little weasel i Adolf like Eichmann. he i don't think he had a voice yeah um yeah. adolf adolf eichmann was basically a, an introvert I mean, he yeah. was a logistical genius, but like, I don't think he said two, two words to anybody in public I, ever. There's, there's no one that comes to mind as having the kind of ability to speak things in, like, impose their will on other people through words, the way he did. So yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, but I, maybe you wouldn't have had the Third Reich, but I think there would have been some nationalist uprising. No, you would have in Germany. Had- the nazis but i don't think it would have been i mean well i don't yeah. that's what i'm saying it wouldn't be would, the third yeah. reich like it right wouldn't be yeah that. anyway let's not spend too much time talking about that um so which person would you punch in the face <laughs> you gotta pick one and it's just like we did last time eric you can't bloop in punch bloop out you gotta deal with the consequences of your actions can i I just punch myself rather than one of these four. Nope. You got to punch one of these four. So starting with Germany, Ernst Younger. He's one of Germany's most decorated soldiers. He was wounded seven separate times during the war. And he's well known for his bravery and exploits, especially at the battle of the Somme. Uh, I was reading about him. He is awesome. And Dan Carlin, I think refers to him a lot in his countdown to Armageddon. Um, If you ever listen to that podcast series, uh during op during uh one of the last operations of the german offenses of the, i think is operation michael he led a successful advance while being shot through the chest and less seriously across the head at the battle of the somme near the obliterated remains of a village of guillemont his platoon took up a front line position in a defile that had been shelled until it consisted of no more than a dip strewn with the rotting corpses of his predecessors he wrote and this is unbelievable as the storm raged around us i walked up and down my sector the men had fixed bayonets they stood stony and motionless rifle in hand on the front edge of the dip gazing into the field now and then by the light of a flare i saw steel 
helmet by steel helmet, blade by glinting blade, and I was overcome by a feeling of invulnerability. We might be crushed, but we surely could not be conquered. That dude's terrifying. So that's Ernst Younger. Next one is Sergeant Alvin York, USA. Won a Medal of Honor storming a machine gun nest with his company. Captured 35 machine gun, 132 prisoners, and killed 25 Germans. Uh, his quote is, those machine guns were spitting fire and cutting down the undergrowth all around me. Something awful. And the Germans were yelling orders. You never heard such a racket in all your life. And I didn't have time to dodge behind a tree or dive into the brush. As soon as the machine guns opened fire on me, I began to exchange shots with them. There were over 30 of them in continuous action. And all I could do was touch the Germans off as fast as I could. I was sharpshooting. All the time, I just kept yelling at them to come down. I didn't want to kill any more than I had to. But it was they or I. And I was giving them the best I had. That's your second option, Alvin York. Next one is USA again, America, Private Henry Johnson. Fought 20 German soldiers with a Bowie knife. He was, tw- he was wounded 21 times in this fight. And his quote is, it, it, and Teddy Roosevelt Jr., so Teddy Roosevelt's son, said he was one of the five bravest American soldiers in the war. Uh, he said, and Johnson said, each slash meant something. Believe me, there wasn't anything so fine about it. Just fought for my life. A rabbit would have done that. And then finally, Australia, George Ingram won the Victorious Cross storming German gun nest in the battle in France in 1918. And uh, I don't have any quotes for him, unfortunately, but those are your four. So which one of the four are you going to punch in the face? Ernst Younger of Germany, Sergeant Alvin York of the United States, Private Henry Johnson of the United States, or George Ingram of Australia? Okay, Ernst Younger lived until 1998. Yeah. It was 102. After being shot in the chest. Maybe that's the secret to long life. (laughs) I don't think that's accurate. You think think the secret to long life is if you can survive World War I, you're basically going to have a nice long life? Probably. Maybe. Well, no, because... Private Henry Johnson died in 1929 of like yeah. tuberculosis. So, <clears throat> you got to pick one. Ugh. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with George Ingram because this is the. I, I haven't known a lot of Australians in my life, but uh, the few that I do, if I punched one of them in the face and then bought them a beer, I'd probably live. Yeah, no, that's a good thought. I, I was thinking the same thing. I, you punch the Australian, you're probably like, oh, good day, mate. And then, you know, punch you back. He's not going to not punch yeah. you, but he's that not going to be a safe bet because I think he's just used to getting punched by other people and yeah. punching back. If, if I, the, you might if be on the onto stereotypes something. are tr- holding true. Which, yeah. And why you should not? rely on stereotypes, yeah. right? Uh, I, I'm definitely not going to pick the person who, uh, the person who literally. The, the lesser wound was to the skull and then denounced the Nazis for a while until uh, he got hunted down by them. And then they made him an army captain. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely Ernst Younger is not on the list. Uh, Private and, Henry and, Johnson also not on the list. Uh, and Bowie, Bowie knife guy. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh-uh. Henry Johnson. <laughs> no. So he can use his hands. So uh, 
<laughs> George Ingram, possibly. I might be leaning into uh, Alvin York. That was my second one. I was thinking <sighs> that might be the way to go. Because it sounds like Alvin York doesn't want to kill you. Because I'm looking at his picture and. <laughs> The way he's looking at me in the picture is exactly how I'd expect him to look at me after I punched him. Just kind of with a weird smirk, like, oh, okay. That was cute. <laughs> well, I yeah. guess we're done here. Um, yeah. Really? He tried to get conscientious, conscientious objector status. And instead he won the Medal of Honor. So there you go. So that that's somebody we got to talk about sometime. Alvin York? No. Um, the guy from World War II? Yeah. Uh, name just escaped me. Yeah. Uh, okay. Dang. Desmond okay. Doss. All right. We will definitely talk about him. Alvin but... York. I think I'm going to go with Alvin York. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go Ingram with Kyle. I'm going to go George Ingram, Australia. Uh, same he does reasoning. look softer. <laughs> I don't know if you ever want to say that. I'm just looking at the picture. <laughs> I based it solely on the picture. No, I think that's totally fine. Like every one of these guys <laughs> is terrifying. Um, but I'm going to go Ingram because I think he's going to take it the best. Like it'll be like, it's like, oh, is that a mosquito bite or something like that? And not get too upset at me because I'm a weak puncher. Um, the other ones I think might really hurt me. All right, so uh, which event in World War II would you like to be a part of or witness? And I left this one World open. World War I? World War I. Which event would you like to be a part of or witness? And I left this one open. For World War I, I, I will jump in and I'll cheat and jump in. And I, I would have loved to have seen... And I know it's way overdone in a lot of the movies and stuff, but I would have loved to have seen the Christmas miracle. Yeah. The Christmas, uh, the Christmas armistice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That would have just been nice to see a little bit of humanity in the middle of all of that. Yeah, that, that was the one I thought of when I wrote the question. I, oh, had, I wrote it with that. <laughs> no, no, don't be sorry. It's not like we, own the choices um but that when i wrote the question that's what i had in mind was was the piece the christmas day piece and um i think it would be this weird beautiful moment in this hellscape and it would be very interesting to to witness i don't know if i would want to be a part of it but it would be something to, to see you know i got asked that question in college what when what time period we'd like to go back to, I said, 1940s Europe and everyone looked at me weird. I'm like, I want to witness that, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's two events I'd like to witness. The first one is just, I, I would like to see what Gallipoli looked like. Just kind of witness that assault. But the other one is the Battle of Messine in 1917, uh, because it was kind of a unique battle in that both the Germans and the British attempted to tunnel underneath each other's trenches. Mm. And then upon doing so, they spent this whole time mining and then they filled the mines with explosives, the British did, and they detonated it. 
And uh, it was apparently the largest explosion until the atomic blast. Jeez. Um, it was a very large explosion that was detonated. Um, all the mines were at 3.17 a.m. on June the 17th. Um, largest non-nuclear -ex explosion. It's on that list. Okay. That would be something to see. Yeah. All right. All right. So I've got some other questions. Oh, I got a, would you rather, hmm. would you rather be a pilot in a Fokker triplane? Be a gunner in a Mark one tank, be a crewman in a U 21 submarine or be a soldier in a trench. Oh God. Pilot. None of them, none of them sound great by the way. Oh, being the pilot sounds wonderful. Oh, no. Nope. I've got a thing with heights. I go on a tall ladder. I'm out. It's... I'm sorry. The rest is all claustrophobia. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like the idea of being on a submarine. I know our friend Jack, our friend and former student Jack is is on a submarine. That's what he does. Mm -hmm. And I know it's he, he makes it sound luxurious and wide open. And it sounds terrifying to me just to know that hundreds of pounds of pressure just trying to crush me um being in a mark one tank i know it goes a whole two and a half miles an hour and is just a wonderful target for artillery no thanks <laughs> i have no interest in being in a tank and uh i don't like going to the beach and getting sand in my sandals so being in a trench for two weeks and getting mud in my boots no i want to be a pilot it's like with a well. pilot of a plane, like you're like you run out of bullets with your machine guns, you got to pull out your sidearm and like boo, 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 like as you're flying, but you're it's when you run out of bullets with that and then you throw the gun at the opposed, like it's just yeah, and those just are, canvas, right? Those things are canvas and light wood. And if somebody lights a cigarette while they're in the plane, it's game over, it's I, not for me. No, I'm not saying I want to be in a sub. I feel like Weird. it'd be hard to light a cigarette while flying. Oh, I, open bet, I bet they all did. I bet some German doctors like make sure you guys smoke up there. It'll keep your lungs strong with thin air. <laughs> I'm I'm a hundred percent sure somebody said that. Probably. How about you? So I I'm a I'm a trench guy. I'm Ugh. gonna say I'm gonna take my my yeah, my two weeks in the trench. Hope I don't get wounded too badly and then go convalesce for the rest of the war. That's my, that's my grand goal. How about you, Kyle? Um, I mean, they're all absolutely terrifying, but. Oh yeah, no, they're not great. No. Um, I guess, uh, I think I would like the submarine actually out of all of oh, them. If gosh. I'm not, if I'm not going to go with the plane. Uh, I think I would go with the submarine just because of the it, it diesel was one of smell. The, well, oh, it's it's, it's <laughs> one of the very few things on the list where it wasn't okay. We're going to put ten thousand of those guys and ten thousand of these guys. And we're just going to smash into each other. There's a lot more still the trickery and trying to actually outmaneuver people, and there was a lot more one-on-one -on -one type of thing. Do you know that of forty thousand German sailors on U-boats during World oh. War II? Only ten thousand came back. Yeah, I mean it's it's bad it's bad stats no matter how you look at it. And that's a terrible way to die. Oh yeah. I so 
you know that uh, that was like five, 10 years ago, the Russians actually had one of their submarines sink. I think it was in the Baltic Sea and it hit the bottom of the ocean and the Russians were like, well, we're going to try to rescue them. And the Americans said, we can help. We have a ship that mm-hmm. can do exactly what you need. It'll go there. It'll either bring the sub up or it'll go down and rescue them. And the Russians are like, you're not getting anywhere near our sub. Yep. And those 100 or 200 Russian sailors suffocated to death over two weeks at the bottom of the ocean. Yep. No, thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. So, well, that's okay. Because that, that puts me, I'm infantry. Eric's Air Force, Kyle's Navy. So we've got... Let me fall from the sky. (laughs) I mean, I'll end up in your trench. How's that, Jake? (laughs) I'll catch you. (laughs) I got you, buddy. All right. So I got another question. Uh, If you could change one event of World War I or things immediately preceding it or ending or after it, what would that be? Uh, and I got a couple options for you. If you want to pick something outside of these three options, that's fine. Uh, one of the ones I thought of was prevent the Archduke's assassination. Uh, have Germany sue for peace in 1917 as opposed to 1918. Or not have Germany smuggle Lenin into Russia. Mm-hmm. And again, if you don't want to pick any of those three, that's fine. That one's good, but... Uh, might I propose the shovel never gets invented, so they can't dig trenches? You think that, and I said immediately precedes the war, not okay. thousands of years before the war. <laughs> uh, the machine gun is not invented. So everyone's still on the... the yep, just rifles. Repeaters. Okay. Kyle? But I also like the Lenin one. Well, I think the Lenin one's funny because I think it worked too well um, for Germany because it, by, and I'm not going to bring up like, you know, there's this fear of socialism cropping up everywhere. And, and then Lenin was that specter. And so then they smuggled them in on a train to, to Russia to, to sow discord in Russia. And it worked, um, although things weren't going great in Russia anyway. But then a lot of, especially after the war, there was a lot of socialists groups uprising in Germany after Germany had surrendered and it almost worked a little too well um, for Germany. It, it created problems within the German empire and then in the Weimar Republic as well. And this isn't a debate on whether or not socialism is good or bad. It's a debate on the impact Lenin had um, on Russia. How about you, Kyle? I would honestly, of the three, I would say probably the armistice in 1917 because uh, I think it was headed to war regardless. I, I think Germany, I, I, I have I have a weird, odd, like broad view of just I think Germany became too strong of a world power and that area, and nobody was ready for it or willing for it. So they were going to fight Germany one way or another. Who's they? Uh, France and England. Oh, so it's interesting. I said 1917 because in 1917, Germany had crushed Romania. Yeah. They crushed Italy. 
they it, defeated it Russia. It would have so, become a more favorable position, and they wouldn't have had a uh, such a pose. People would have been willing to come be like, oh, okay, we're, we're going to end this? Yeah, let's end this now. Yeah, you come to Versailles or wherever, probably would have been in Berlin mm-hmm. on kind of more equal terms. Yeah. The war now, just ends and let's... And would that have been just before then America got involved? Before the Zidane? Uh, I think America was involved in, in April, April of 1917. Yeah, 1917. Okay. So, it, yeah, it would have been towards the end of 1917, but... That was the last. That was the last time Germany was in a real position of strength yeah. in the war. It was because they won on the Eastern Front. They defeated Italy. They defeated Romania, um, and so they were in a position of strength with France and England. And yeah. instead of suing for peace, then they began doing their Operation Michael and and all this stuff that these last offensives that didn't work like they thought they would. All right. And then I have one random open question and it kind of ties into that 1917 had Germany won the war or at least not collapsed as a result of the war, would that have been better for the world? And the main reason I ask this question is because my thought is if Germany doesn't collapse or or the, the Kaiser, you know, the, the monarchy doesn't collapse and, um, they don't fall into disrepair in the 1920s and 30s. Does that prevent the rise of these ultranationalists? And does that prevent the rise of Hitler or someone like him in Germany in the 1920s and 30s? I mean, the Great Depression would have still happened and created a lot of strife. But I don't think, I think if Germany would have come out better than it had, I think it would have, I People, people aren't so willing to go completely crazy when they have food on the table, so to speak. It's true. And so it's, I, I think it actually would have, uh, oddly to say, I think it would have honestly would have been better for the world. I mean, you're likely to still have authoritarian movements in Russia, yep. the Soviet Union, in Italy, in Spain. Yep. It's possible that with a more favorable German end to the war that those movements take root in places like France. Oh yeah. Uh, maybe in, uh, probably not in England, but in France, definitely yep. uh, maybe in some Balkan places, but those are gonna, not going to be uh, relevant to larger events. But if, if you have a, a France with a more nationalist, ultra nationalist movement going on at the same time that Spain goes through its civil war, same time that Italy uh, begins to fall under the sway of uh, Benito Mussolini and you have the Leninists and then Stalinists in the Soviet Union, you could end up with a similar situation, just different I, players. I, I think I think if it would have gone differently, and obviously, like I agree with you, the different players I think would have been something like France, Russia, and Japan versus everybody else. Okay, so here's a counterpoint is uh, to would the world be better had Germany won is Germany did lose and then Germany had the rise of the Third Reich. But because Germany lost, like we said, four empires fell as a result of World War I. But as a result of World War II, France and England also had to give up their empires. And so all those former colonies were now allowed to 
seek their independence. So had Germany not lost, had they won, Germany keeps its empire. There's nothing to say that necessarily we have a World War II. And so does France and England get to keep their empires and the U.S. is not in a position to compel them to give up their empires, to give up their colonies. Uh, is that better for the world or is allowing all these former colonies to seek sovereignty and to break from the hold of empire? Isn't that a good thing? And is that something that might not have happened had the events of World War Two, World War One, not led to World War Two? I mean, Israel was able to be founded as a nation yeah. again. Um, Egypt is able to have sovereignty for the first time in like 2000 years. Like uh, it, it's just uh, all these yeah. things, uh, Japan, the empire of Japan. I mean, had they been allowed to go unchecked? I think we would have fought. I think, I think regardless of everything else, somebody would have ended up fighting Japan in the Pacific. True. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. It's just interesting because we only look at the scale of like, what's better for the world in terms of Europe and its immediate yeah. surrounding areas. When we talk about world war one, world war two, it's like, yeah, but it, this truly was a world war. Both of these were world wars yeah. and they involved all these people that didn't have their own sovereignty. If you have Germany and France and England maintain their empires after world war one, mm -hmm. that means leading into the thirties and forties, there's still going to be that, that competition for colonies and that the difficulty to maintain trade and trade routes around the world. Sure. If World War II doesn't happen and the U.S. never puts itself in a position to protect and maintain worldwide trade for free for everyone, um, then the major powers still have to compete and they have to compete militarily for access to all those points, which will lead to another conflict. It might not be World War II scale, but eventually Germany or France or England are going to be at war with each other. Just, and it might be a colonial, it might be a proxy war, but it'll be in colonies rather than foreign yeah. nations. So, and as, as far as self-determination goes, uh, that's worse off. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you so. can say there's a lot of problems with the world today, but I think the collapse of the European empires is a net positive for the yeah. world on a whole. Um, yeah. So it's just an interesting question. All right. Uh, well, that's it for our episode. Um, so thank you guys for, uh, oh, actually you have one last question. Oh my! This gosh. is a dad question. Coming up with these. We all say as parents that we should not pick our favorites when it comes to our kids. However, what about the other way around? Do your kids have favorites between mom and dad? And I'll go first. And so I, I think it's interesting because with my kids, they've had favorites for both of us at different times in their lives. Like early on, my daughter and my son were all about mom. And then I, I think my son still has mom as her as the favorite. And then my daughter is she kind of bounces back before <laughs> she manipulates us on who our favorite, like, huh. like she plays us off one another very, very savvily. Um, so, but I, I do think real politic is what, you know, she would call that. She, exactly. She knows how to, she knows how to alliance build, but it's just, uh, it's interesting. And I don't mean it like to say 
your kids don't love you or love you and not your wife. But like, it's just interesting to see how over time your kids kind of, you can see who they gravitate towards as far as mom or dad. And I think mm-hmm. it changes. I know it changes because I've seen yeah. it. For, for me, I would say that uh, he's getting old enough. It, it used to be definitely when he was really little, he was, especially because my wife wasn't home, Julie wasn't home a lot, going to school. He was absolutely a mama's boy. Like mm-hmm. mom, like, like when mom came into the house, he was like, mom. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, like, but, um, but uh, now it depends on what he wants. <laughs> if that makes any, like, if he's looking for shenanigans, it's like, Smart. oh, dad, you know. Yeah. If it, if it, if it's something uh, not quite shenanigans, basically, because he knows that that's not something that Julie's going to be really into, then sure. it's definitely more mom. But yeah. Okay. Eric, do you have a? Do your kids have a preference one way or another, or have I they? Think they favor their mother. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I. I'm sure there are moments when they. They think I'm pretty great, but. It's mom. Okay. That's good. All right. Well, that's it. That's the end of our episode. Thank you guys for joining (laughs) us. Be sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Maybe MySpace. I don't know if we have a MySpace page, but uh, thank you again. Have a great week. And and for all those who served, active military or veterans, thank you very much for your service. See you all next time. Thank you.